And I want to entitle this uh, message, uh, uh, Making History. Making His Story. little double entendre there. Making His Story. Making History. I want to pray before we even get into this. Um, in fact, can we stand one more time? I, I, I want to use this as an occasion, not just to pray for the message, but we're kingdom people. We're gathered together. God's given us tremendous authority in prayer. Amen? And uh, this is a good time for us to use it. There's power in numbers, power in agreement. So would you grab the hand of the person next to you and just agree with me uh, as we go before the throne of God to cash in some kingdom chips as God's kids on behalf of the world. Pray with me here. Father, we just thank you and bless you for your grace that has called us out of darkness and planted us into the kingdom of your marvelous light. You've forgiven us, you've redeemed us, you've filled us with your spirit, and we acknowledge on this Thanksgiving weekend, as we do every day of our life, that everything we have uh, comes from you. It is a gift from you, Lord. We thank you, God, for our health, uh, whatever the health may be, and for our, our, our brain and for our heart, Lord God, for every breath we breathe that comes from you, it is a gift. And the salvation that allows us to stand and go boldly before the presence of God, that, that is the most marvelous gift, and we give you thanks for it, Lord. We're gathered together in Jesus' name, and where two or three are gathered together, you're there in the midst of them, and we thank you for that. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being present here. Father, we, we right now use the authority we have in prayer to intercede on behalf of the leaders of our nation as your word commands us to. And as your word commands us, Lord, we pray that you will give them wisdom to guide our country, Lord God, and work, go forward in the ways of peace, Lord God. Give them the wisdom that comes from above, Lord God, to see strategies for ending violence and conflict in this world. We pray blessing on them and blessing on our nation and blessing on every nation, Lord God. For you've called us to be an international people with a global perspective, Lord. We pray for anyone in this congregation who's going through marriage struggles right now and in Jesus' name we pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll be mending the wounds that are there, Lord God, and bringing forgiveness where once there was bitterness, Lord God. Bind our families together. We pray on behalf of our children right now as they're in children's church hearing the gospel on their level. Lord, just send your spirit on them. Rain on them. Put your arms around them and bless them. And bless the workers, Lord God. And for our youth that are meeting right now, our teens, Lord, we just pray that your spirit would land on them and you'd make them radical kingdom disciples in Jesus' name. And Father, for all who have physical ailments, we pray, Lord God, healing right now in Jesus' name. As your word goes forward, let it accomplish all that you intend. And Lord God, manifest your glory in your kingdom by healing people of their physical wounds, of their emotional scars, of their psychological scars, and of their spiritual scars. Lord God, let it be done. Let it be done. And as your word goes forward now, we pray, Lord God, that it would have your authority, not mine, because I don't got any authority. Lord God, I'll open up my mouth, but we just pray that you would infuse it with your anointing to build your kingdom, that we might be the, the servant kingdom that you've called us to be. Tearing down walls, building bridges, washing feet, meeting needs, displaying the love of God in every way, shape, and form. Build your kingdom right here and right now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 You may be seated. <sighs> Praise God. Praise God. Luke chapter 1. I, I want to set up the, my reading of, it, uh, of this passage this way. Let me ask a very carnal question, I suppose. Uh, how many of you are, are, are fans of the TV series 24? Raise your hands. 20. Hey, yeah. All right, we got, we got some. What's wrong with you people? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I, uh, I, I and my family and some friends discovered 24 last year. Hadn't seen it before this. And uh, found that it is the single most addictive show ever invented on television. Is that true? Uh, which probably means I should be preaching against it and here I'm using it as an illustration. But 
Uh, got into 24, and we started watching the fourth season, uh, but we got so interested in it, we started watching the first three seasons that are out in DVD. And you find, you plug one of those in, and you can't, then you got to go to the next one, and you got to go to the next one, and you got to go to the next one. At three in the morning, you're saying, oh, just one more, just one more. <laughs> in a span of about three months, we went through three years. I've never watched so much TV in my life. <sighs> but it's a good show. It really is good. Now, in the first season, and if you haven't watched the first season, I'm going to spoil a little bit of it here. Uh, but I have to make an illustration. Uh, do you remember, you fans, remember Nina? Nina? Uh, Jack's friend. Uh, Nina was one of the heroes of the show. She was uh, working for, is it CTU? And, and was one of the good guys, one of the heroes, you know, brave, uh, you know, Jack's right-hand gal. A little too close, actually, at some points, but that's a different sermon. And, um, uh, but, you know, you trusted Nina. Then, towards the end, the last couple hours, this series sends you for a loop, as it frequently does. Uh, and it turns out Nina is working for the terrorists. I felt betrayed, bewildered. And you, 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 at first it's like, the, what? What? No way! We must be misunderstanding something. We must be misinterpreting something. How, that can't be. No way! And then you start reinterpreting everything because what about all those heroic acts when she looked like she was one of the good guys? And you start reframing everything and then you figure, oh, I've got to watch the whole series again to figure out all that back part. Some TV shows and some movies do this where halfway through it or two-thirds of the way through it or sometimes at the very end, it throws you for a spin. It's just like, where is this story going? And you're confused and bewildered. Now I say all that to say this. I, I went to a, quite a bit of schooling on the Bible, but I'm going to tell you, sometimes the Bible strikes me like that, uh, where you're going, what on earth is going on? Especially, and this is, this is the question I want to be addressing today, and I just have a commitment to being uh, honest, all right? Now, this isn't really what a religious person should say, but, but, but I'm just going to be out loud about something here, because I bet most of you who have read the Bible very closely have wondered about this. How does part one fit with part two? I like part two. Jesus shows up, reveals the definitive revelation of God. And, uh, you know, he teaches us to love our enemies, to turn the other cheek. Uh, this is a God who's not tribalistic, uh, but a God who's universal in his love. And this is a God who, who uh, isn't about warfare with people. He's about warfare in the spiritual realm. And you love your enemies and never retaliate in return. Never return evil with evil, but return evil with good. And, and this is what God is like. Amen. Then you go back to Deuteronomy. Slaughter all the Canaanites. And you go, what? I, I, how does that, you've got a, a, a God who, it seems to me, if I'm honest, seems very tribalistic. He's for one tribe, the nation of Israel. And anyone who's against that tribe, boom, he's going to beat the tar out of them. And, and there's all this warfare stuff. And, and, and so you wonder, how, does, how do these two parts fit together? Now, the passage that we're reading here this morning, and I am going to get around to reading it here in a second. The passage that Scott's been preaching on the last two weeks, verses 67 through 80, is a wonderful occasion to confront that issue. Because as Scott mentioned, this passage is a transitional passage. 35 times in the span of 17 verses, it refers to the Old Testament. It just brings the Old Testament in, but it's looking to the future. It is, the, the baton is being passed from the old to the new. And so this is the time where we've got to ask, how do these two things fit together? Let's read the passage. Uh, this is sometimes in the classical liturgy called, liturgy called the Benedictus. The, the father of uh, John the Baptist, who now has the ability to speak after being silenced for nine months, he says, 
Uh, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the third time in the book of Luke in the span of 60 verses that we've seen that phrase. Filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. Look at that specific focus. Isn't he the God of everybody? Because he has come to, to his people, the Jews, to redeem them. Doesn't he want to redeem everybody? He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said long ago uh, through his holy prophets. Salvation from our enemies. There's that nationalistic warfare motif. And from the hand of all who hate us. There's that nationalistic warfare motif again. To show mercy to our ancestors, apparently not anyone else's ancestors, and to remember his holy covenant, the covenant that he made with us, his, his chosen people. This is the oath he swore to our father, Abraham. He didn't swear it to everyone's father, just our father, Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies. There's all this warfare talk. And to enable us to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So far, every phrase that, that Zechariah has prophesied has come directly from the Old Testament. And now he says, not about, he talks not about the past, but about the future, as he looks at his son. And he says, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Apparently, in part one, they didn't have a full knowledge of salvation, nor did they have full knowledge of the forgiveness of sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God. And now note the flavor change. He's no longer talking about a nationalistic warrior deity, but he's, he's emphasizing the tender mercy of God. Something is changing here. By which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness. Well, we're all living in darkness, so now apparently there's a universal focus. And to shine on all who are in the shadow of, the, uh, shadow of death. Well, we're all under the shadow of death. And so now no longer is it specifically tribal, is it specific Israel, is it uh, earthly warfare. Now the darkness is a spiritual darkness and it's being confronted on behalf of all people. To guide them, to guide our feet into the path, no longer of warfare, but of peace. You see the change that's happened here? And the child grew and became strong in spirit and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. Amen. Thus ends the reading of the word of God. This passage looks backward as it looks forward. It looks backward in order to look forward. It grabs hold of the Old Testament and applies it to the present in order to look to, to the future. And the process of passing on this baton, it goes from this Old Testament centered on Israel warfare motif to this global centered on peace and mercy motif. This is the passing of the baton. Now the question is this. That the two are connected is clear. How the two are connected is still not. And that's why I want to investigate. How is this part of one story? The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's plans sometimes change, but his character, his overall purposes never change. So we have to believe that the God of the New Testament is the same as the God of the Old Testament. But it doesn't always look like that, does it? It, it, it sometimes seems like you've got two different deities going on. In fact, there were some in the early church who, who came to that conclusion. And they threw out the whole Old Testament. It's like, forget, forget that book. We, we're dealing with a different God here in the New Testament. But that move doesn't work either because Jesus is the one who endorses the Old Testament. He says it's the Word of God. And we believe He's the Son of God, and I'm not going to go about correcting His theology. So we've got to make sense out of this, this, this paradox of the apparently two different 
gods between the Old and the New Testament, when it's really all the same God. God always looks like Jesus Christ. It's just that he doesn't always look like Jesus Christ. How do we make sense out of this? How is this part of one story? How is this his story? I'm going to give three quick principles. Well, at least three principles as quick as possible. Okay. Principle number one. We need to understand that God is interested in shaping history into his story. And I, I'll tell you here, this is one of, more, one of those more educational messages. Sometimes I go more motivational, sometimes more educational. This is kind of educational, so put your thinking caps on. Some of this might be a little new for some people. But God is interested in shaping history into his story. Now here's why this is important. A lot of, of us Americans tend to be very practical. We want to know what the bottom line is. Just give us the deal, the bottom line deal. Cut to the chase. And the way we tend to think is that what has the most impact to us is the bottom line deal. And so we tend to uh, be concerned primarily with, we tend to be concerned primarily with uh, salvation, whether you're going to heaven or hell. What else really matters? You're going to heaven or hell. That's the question a lot of Americans live in. And so that's the question we have when we read the Bible. And a lot of people think, even if they don't express it explicitly, they tend to think that the Bible is supposed to be sort of the escape from hell manual. This is the instruction book. Now, I want to submit to you that if that's what God was interested in, the Bible would be a whole lot shorter. That isn't the primary thing that the Bible is about. In fact, it's actually a fairly marginal thing. In fact, even the word salvation in the Bible does not primarily mean salvation from hell. The Bible, the concept of salvation, soteria or shalom in Hebrew, is not primarily about the afterlife. It's about this life. And it's not about what you're saved from. It's about what you're saved or who you're saved for. The idea is much more, it's, it's, it's about wholeness, about living the life of God, about walking in the presence of God, about having peace of mind. Uh, it's about being saved here and now. That's what the Bible's really centered on. And even more fundamental than that, the Bible's centered on telling a story, the story of God making history into his story. The Bible is, God is as it were. He's very interested in the shape of history. He is like a master artist who's painting a painting or a sculpture who's, who's sculpting a magnificent sculpture. And God is taking sort of the manure of human history, all the crazy stuff that we do, and he is, in his infinite wisdom and power, designing it to have a certain shape. And the Bible is primarily the story of God's working in history. It's not primarily about who, who's saved and who's damned. It's rather about how God is working in history to bring up a people here and now. How God is working in history to take this, this rebellious race from its fallen state into this redeemed state. How he's patiently, patiently raising up a people who understand him, who come to know him as he is. He's sculpting a magnificent work of art that will be put on display throughout eternity, showing forth his infinite wisdom and his infinite grace. Now, here's why this is important. If you go to the Bible with the question, who's saved and who's not, you're going to misread the whole thing. Because you'll look at all of this Old Testament tribal stuff, and you'll think that that's about salvation. So when God elects Israel, you'll think, well, oh, they were the only ones who were saved. So that now it looks like there's a radical disparity between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, because the God of the Old Testament looks like he's playing favorites, arbitrary favorites. I love these people, but I don't love anybody else. I save these people, but I'm not going to save anybody else. 
And you'll read the, the specific role of Israel, not in terms of a job it was supposed to do in history, but in terms of eternal salvation. And now you end up with this very capricious, unjust view of God. It's a view of God that I was given when I was first a Christian. I bet a lot of you were too. The, the, and it used to bother me profoundly to the point where at one point in my life I said, I, I got to reject God because I can't believe this. But the, the, the picture I had in my mind was that on the, on the judgment day, I bet a lot of you have struggled with this. On the judgment day, you know, God's going to be up there on his throne and all the peoples of the earth are going to be present there. Now, most people on the earth weren't part of the Jewish thing in the Old Testament, and many people on the earth haven't heard about the Christian thing in the New Testament. And so they're going to be sitting there in ignorance, and the picture I had was God saying, oh, you guys, you know, billions upon billions upon billions of people, the majority of people he ever created, he's going to say, oh, yeah, I loved you, I created you because I loved you, I died for you. Ah, shoot, you, were, you weren't born Jewish. Doggone it, you've got to go to hell. Sorry. <laughs> now, if only you were born Jewish. If only you were, you know, you're born at the wrong time in the wrong place, wrong with, uh, raised by the wrong people. There's this technicality. You didn't happen to get the right amount of information, so you've got to go to hell. And I want to submit to you that that is not uh, the biblical view of God. God does work in particular ways for historical purposes, but God's love is never particular. God's love, or I rather should say it's always particular, but it's to every particular person. Uh, God is a God, he's always been a God of universal love. He's always been bringing salvation to all people. He tells us a small slice of this in, 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 the, in the Bible, but he's always at work. Let me give you one verse, just one verse to, to illustrate this point. I'll give you a lot of them, but I'll give you one. Acts chapter 17. Paul here is preaching to uh, some Gentile philosophers. And as a good evangelist, Paul doesn't preach out of his own presuppositions, hammering the Bible on their head. He rather quotes their philosophers. Uh, and so far as their philosophers speak truth, apparently even their philosophers, these Greek philosophers, these pagans, have a little bit of light. And Paul capitalizes on that light as he quotes their philosophers to them to try to bring them to, bring them to some truth. Here's what Paul says. From one man, namely Adam, God made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. God marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Now, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though, as a matter of fact, he's not far from any one of us. Now he's quoting a pagan philosopher. For in him we live and move and have our being. Now he's quoting another pagan philosopher. Let me break this passage. It's a fascinating passage. I'll break it down in a couple ways. Number one, the passage doesn't mean that God is meticulously controlling every decision that a king or a captain ever made that has determined the, the, the time and the domain of, of a nation's reign. The, past, the word that's used here in Greek is horizo, which we get the word horizon from it. And it says God set the horizon of their times and their space. He doesn't override everyone's free will, but he clearly is involved in this, setting the parameters of the decisions they make. Now, kings and princes and soldiers, when they go to war uh, to, to expand the scope of their nation, this is just kind of how history goes. One king decides he wants more land or some other nation's a threat to him, so he conquers that nation. Then another conquering nation conquers him. And it's a whole tit-for-tat, bloody carnage game. That's, the, that's the, the way history goes. When we look at the nation building and the nation falling, what we see is a bunch of military warfare. And that's how it's been going on since day one and will go on until the Lord comes back. God hates all of that. It's a sign of the fall. But what the passage is saying is that there's another dimension to this. Yes, they're doing their warfare decisions, but God is not above getting his hands dirty by working through us in the midst of our sinfulness. 
So God is setting the parameters and steering the whole thing. Now, kings and princes and soldiers, they have their own self-interest and the self-interest of their nation in mind. They all, they've always operated out of a nationalistic idolatry, and so that's what they have in mind when they set the domain of their nation. As God's using them, what God has in mind is one thing, and the passage tells us what it is. What God has in mind is, how can I turn people's heart to me? How can I? Paul says he's always operating, setting the horizon, setting the boundaries, steering the course of history so that perhaps people will develop a hunger for him. And perhaps insofar as they're able, given their cultural constraints, they'll, they'll find him. Uh, salvation is found only in the person of Jesus Christ. But we've got to remember that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. Uh, it says in John chapter 1 that all things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. What we need to understand is that the light of God has been working throughout history from the very beginning. Every nation, Paul says, descending from Adam, he's been operative in, trying to turn the hearts of people to him. When Rome was being founded and when Rome fell, God was active, trying to turn people's hearts to him. When Egypt was rising as this great empire for a couple thousand years, and then when Egypt, Egypt fell, and every time in between, God was working to turn the heart of people to him. When the great Islamic empires rose and when they fell, when the great Chinese dynasties rose and when the Chinese dynasties fell, God was operative there. He was working to turn the heart of people to him insofar as their, their, their hearts could be turned towards him and insofar as their, their cultural constraints allowed them to receive light. And when America was being founded and when America shall fall if the Lord tarries, God is operative there. Every person who's ever been born has lived and moved and had their being in God. He's never been far from anybody. He's been right here with everybody, seeking them, turning their hearts towards him because God has always been, even in the Old Testament, a passionate God who's in love with everybody. And Paul tells us in, in Romans 2 that when people don't have the revelation, God works through their conscience and judges them on the basis of their conscience. God wants everybody to know Jesus Christ, and it's crucial that everybody comes to know Jesus Christ. And our marching orders are to consider everyone in danger who doesn't know Jesus Christ. You can only celebrate the life of a kingdom person who's walking in relationship with Jesus Christ. But at the same time, we're not giving enough revelation to say that we know who's going to hell. What we do know is that God loves them, and God's working in their life to turn them to him. My point here is this. We need to keep that distinction between how God's working to save people on the one hand and how God's working to shape history on the other. A very important distinction. God's history mode is quite particular. God's saving mode is universal. Most of what God is doing in history to save people, we're not told about. It, we're given little hints there in the Bible, but the focus is, uh, in the Bible is on how God uses Israel and then the church to shape history. That was point number one. Point number two has got to go a little faster. Here we go. History, the, his story is shaped by God, not us. This is a fundamental theme that weaves the whole thing together. History, his story, is shaped by God, not by us. If I could be a little crass here, we, we, we supply the manure, but God shapes it into a beautiful sculpture. He uses our failings to carve the design that he wants to carve in history. And this is a fundamental theme that brings the two, two testaments together. Ask this question. Why did God choose Israel? Was it because Israel was holier than other nations? And the answer you get if you read the Bible at all is, nope, they weren't holier. 
Is it because they were wiser? No, they were not wiser. Is it because they were mightier? No, it's not because they were mightier. Why did God choose Israel? There's several times in the Old Testament where God sort of chides Israel by asking that question. Hey, you guys, look, Deuteronomy 7, for example. Why do you think I chose you? Here's a clue. It wasn't because anything about you. <laughs> it wasn't because you're mightier, better looking, or wiser, or holier, or anything like that. I chose you because, and this is what you find throughout the whole Bible, I chose you because I wanted to. I chose you because I can. I'm God. I can do whatever I want. Gosh. I can choose you if I want. <sighs> Humans. <laughs> he just says, he, he says this. Look, at I made a deal with Abraham. I told Abraham if he'd walk with me, I'd, I'd, I, I swore an oath I, I would be faithful to his descendants, so I'm going to be faithful. There's several times where the Lord says, you know what, I'm so tired of you guys. I would just soon wipe you off the face of the planet, but I made this promise to Abraham I can't do it. Oh, I hate when that happens. But the point is this. God chose Israel because he wanted to choose Israel. It was totally arbitrary. That's really the point of Romans 9. Now, it's not about salvation, and it's not about damnation. It's about what chisel is God going to use to carve out history. And he says, I'm going to take those little bitty people, incubate them in Egypt for 400 years, bring them out, and hammer my ways into them, and show that I'm the God of the universe. I, I'm going to use them to chisel history. It's not about salvation and damnation. It's about history. But God chooses them precisely to show that he doesn't need the mightiest and he doesn't need the holiest and he doesn't need the perfect and he doesn't need the smartest to accomplish his will in history. He can use anybody. Yes. That's the point of the story. That's why the Bible is always, it, it does much more to emphasize the weakness of people than it does to emphasize the, in, the, the innate strengths of people. Do you ever notice that? Uh, the, the, the story in the Old Testament is actually fairly repetitious. Uh, the, the pattern goes over and over again. It's something like this. God, out of his love and mercy, chooses Israel. Israel rebels. God punishes Israel to teach Israel how to walk with him. Uh, Israel's restored because of God's mercy. Then Israel rebels. God punishes Israel to teach them his ways. Israel, out of God's mercy, is restored. Then Israel rebels. God punishes Israel, and it goes on and on and on. But that's part of the point of the story because God still uses them. Despite, not because of them, but despite them, God still uses Israel and is still using Israel to accomplish his, pur uh, his purposes. The Old Testament stresses the weakness much more than the strength. Even the heroes come out looking rather shady, don't they? Two biggest heroes in the Old Testament are Abraham and David, I would argue. Abraham and David. Abraham, great guy, father of the faithful, trust in God, love God, hallelujah. <laughs> twice, twice, not once, twice, he pawns off his wife as his sister and has her sleep with Pharaoh because he's afraid of Pharaoh and so he wants to get on the good side of Pharaoh. That's not good. <laughs> Bad. No. Not good. If I, if I did that, I'd be in really bad trouble as a senior pastor. <laughs> but see, th this is the point. This is the point. That despite that, I mean, that's not, that's not like a little screw-up, okay? Can we agree that that is a fairly mega screw-up? That's mega blowing it. Okay, that's, that's really, and to do it the second time is like really not just mega blowing it, that's just plain stupid. Uh, but he does that. And see, that's the point of the story because God still remains faithful to Abraham. God still uses Abraham. And if God can use Abraham, there's hope for Greg Boyd. You know, and there's hope for you. Amen? Amen. David, another hero of the faith. What a great guy. Anointed by God, a man after God's own heart. Hallelujah. 
And though God blesses them, God loves to bless his people and, and dealing with the culture of the time, uh, gives David like a thousand wives and another thousand concubines, and who knows what that's all about. Uh, and I have no idea how David managed that either, by the way. Uh, but <laughs> some guy over here, I heard him whisper, that's supposed to be a blessing? <laughs> All right, moving on. Okay, but see, David, David is a king, and kings throughout history have had this tendency. Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, and so David starts to think he's above the law, and he can get whatever he wants, and he's on the top of his roof one day, not minding his own business, spies out Bathsheba, taking a bath, says, whoa, you know, there's a wife I don't have yet. So he has sex with Bathsheba, gets Bathsheba pregnant. Uh, it turns out Bathsheba's already married to Uriah. So David, being the military captain, puts Uriah up front and makes him a sacrifice. Uh, so he gets killed to cover up the fact that he got Bathsheba present, uh, pregnant. That's not good. That's really, really, really bad. And yet, see, the Bible doesn't color coat this stuff. It just, it just it puts it out there. And David's got to repent, and there's consequences to pay and stuff. And yet God remains faithful to David. God uses David. God is never above using us in our weakness. In fact, that's when he uses us most. And even when we fail and even when we fall, he's not done with us. He stays in there. That's the theme, theme of the whole Old Testament going in the New Testament. <laughs> Forgot to take my testosterone pills this morning. You've got you to gotta, you gotta excuse me. This is why I'm convinced. This is why I'm really convinced God condescends to using this tribal warfare stuff in the Old Testament. Because, see, this is the only language these brutish people understand. And God wants to make the point that it's not about them, it's about him. And the categories these people think in is violent warfare. So God's going to try to show Israel in order to later on show the whole world that he is God and he does stuff without, without the need of human expertise. And so... He raises up this nation, this little bitty nation that's a rebellious nation, but he wants to show that this, this nation here, with Jehovah on their side, can kick the behind of the big boys to show that it's not about human beings, it's about God. That's why you have some of these bizarre rules in the Old Testament, like, like thou shalt not number your soldiers. Don't count your soldiers. Don't count them. And when David does, he gets in really bad trouble. Why? Because counting the soldiers was a sign that you're trusting your soldiers rather than God. And what God is trying to show us throughout the whole thing is it's not about us. It's not about our abilities. It's not about our military. It's not about our strategies. It's not about our innate capacities. It's about God and about us trusting him. The theme of the Old Testament that leads into the New Testament is this, that when we are weak, then he is strong, praise God. The theme that runs throughout the whole thing is the, is the, is, is the theme that God uses ordinary people. And thank God for that because we're all pretty ordinary. The theme of the Old Testament is how God, how we need to trade in our sorrow and receive his joy, trade in our weakness and receive his strength, trade in our despair and receive his victory, how God can take defeat out of the jaws of, or grab victory out of the jaws of defeat. Yeah, how do you say it in America? It's a second language of mine. You see, that's the whole point of the whole thing, how God uses us when we are weak. It means this. If you want to make history, which is what the kingdom is all about, you want to make his story the best spot to be in is one where you're helpless. Where you're saying, I have no clue what I'm going to do. God, will you please show up? That's a kingdom prayer. God, when I am weak, then, then he is strong. Confess your weaknesses. It's true for us as a church. Wilder Hills Church, I'll tell you this. God's given us a massive vision. It's a beautiful vision. 
Uh, but, but I'm going to tell you this. We can't pull this one off on our own. I am so acutely aware of this. Um, we don't have the smartest people running this thing. Uh, we don't have the best strategies. We don't have the, the best, uh, you know, know-how. We certainly don't have a whole lot of money. We've got a whole lot of limitations. But you know what? That's okay. Because we're aware that, that it's not about us. It's about him. It's not Woodland Hills' story. It's his story. It's not about Greg Boyd. It's about Jesus Christ. It's not about Norm Blagman. It's about Jesus Christ. It's not about the, the overseers. It's about Jesus Christ. It's not about Janice Rowling's. It's about Jesus Christ. It's not about how good our programs or our strategies are. Now, we'll do the best we can. Do the best you can. But at the end of the day, you've got to know this. As Jesus said in John 15, without me, you can do nothing. Everybody say nothing. Without me, we, you, without me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. So our prayer's got to be, Father, Father, we need you. We are dependent on you. We lean upon you. We don't lean on our own ways. We don't trust our own understanding or our capacities. We don't number our own soldiers, but we're looking to you. Our eyes are on you. Our eyes are fixed on you. You fight our battles, Lord God. You take our weaknesses and turn them into strength. You took our, take our failures and turn them into victory. We're not looking at ourselves on this one. Our eyes are fixed on Jesus Christ. It runs throughout the entire Bible. From the Old Testament and the New Testament. Which leads to my third principle, it's this. The New Testament completes and transcends the Old Testament for the reasons I've just given. I'll I'll just say two things. There's about 20 things I could say, but I shaved it down to two. And for that, you can be thankful. (laughs) First of all, Jesus. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament theme in an intense way that it's about God, it's not about us. This is what you find in the, in the New Testament, is that in the person of Jesus, all of these themes, as God's been preparing humanity, he's telling one particular storyline, using Israel as an object lesson for how he's crafting history. He's working everywhere, but he focuses our, our attention on, on Israel. All of that was preparation for the coming of Jesus Christ. And when Christ comes, he intensifies, fulfills, and goes beyond the themes of the Old Testament. And so, for example, we find that in Christ we learn just how much it's not about us and how much it really is about God. When Christ shows up, he takes that theme to a new level. Uh, We realize how helpless we are, how fallen we are, how lost we are when the Son of God shows up. You can tell how bad off a patient is by how radical a cure the doctor calls for. If you go in because you have a headache and he doesn't order an aspirin but says, we got to call the brain surgeon, you know you've got a rather serious headache on your hands. When Jesus shows up, what it tells us is this, that we were so far gone, so helpless, so unable to save ourselves. Our situation was so desperate that God himself, the creator of the universe, had to become one of us and enter into our humanity and die a hellish death on Calvary on our behalf. Paul says, for when we were helpless, Christ died for us. We were apart from God, we now realize. Apart from God, we could not save ourselves. You can't earn your way into heaven. Uh, You're too far gone for that. Uh, You were lost, you were destined for an eternity apart from God. In Christ, we, in the very same act by which he tells us how much we're forgiven, he shows us how sinful we are. And the beginning of walking with God is to acknowledge that. As Brother Billy said earlier, it's to acknowledge that you're a sinner in need of him. It's the only prerequisite for starting the kingdom life. Will you confess that you're helpless? 
Will you confess that you're a sinner? You can't earn your way back. There's no brownie points system here that God works with. Uh, you have to make a clean start by having your sins forgiven, wiped clean. And you do that by trusting in Jesus Christ, that he died for you, that he died for you. It's the beginning of the kingdom life. Uh, this morning, if you're here and you've never done that, I want to encourage you to do it. Even right now as I'm talking, you can do it. There's going to be a lot of fans for Will you acknowledge that you are helpless before him, that you're lost without him? You may not feel the full conviction of sin yet. In fact, I think that it takes quite a bit of spiritual growth before you really start feeling the gravity of sin. But if you know, if you just know that whether you feel it or not, that, that in fact he came and died for you, which meant that you needed saving, and that he's the way that you get saved, that you begin this walk with God, then just surrender your life to him. Put your trust in him and surrender your life to him. And when the service is closed, which will be in about five minutes, up here to my right and your left, there's a table up here and there'll be a person who would love to explain to you uh, kind of how to get, get going on this kingdom stuff, how to walk in right relationship with him, become part of the kingdom movement that God's doing in this world. A second theme, a second way in which Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. And I want you really to pay close attention to this because this is missed more often than it's gotten. The goal of Israel was to reach the world. God raised up Israel with the hope of uh, using them to reach all people. Right from the get-go, when God calls Abraham, Abraham's the father uh, of, 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 of Israel, God says this to him, Abraham, I'm going to make out of you a great nation, and I'm going to bless you. God loves to bless his kids. But here's why. He says, so that you will be a blessing to all people on the planet. I want to use you and then your descendants, this particular storyline. You're going to be the chisel by which I'm going to show that my heart is towards all people. God elected Israel in order to show that he ultimately wants to elect everybody. God favored Israel because he wants to show the world that he favors everybody. God blessed Israel because he wanted to be a God who blesses everybody. Over and over again, you read this throughout the, the Old Testament. God played the tribal nationalistic game, if you will, at that stage in history because he wanted to move human beings to the point of showing that he's not a tribal God. He's a universal God who's in love with all of humanity. He had to play the tribal game for a while and raise of Israel as an object lesson, but his goal's always been to the whole world. And he wanted Israel to be the means by which the world was regathered together. A lot of the talk in the Old Testament about Zion, you know, Mount Zion, what's all that about? A lot of it is about how it, it's the rallying point of humanity. God says in a number of places, I'm going to bring together all people. I'll gather them from the ends of the earth, from every tribe and every tongue, and they'll gather around Mount Zion. And he wanted to use Israel as the means of doing that. That, by the way, is why being planted in the promised land was so important, because it was the main trade route of the ancient Mediterranean world. And God wanted to be pumping righteous Jehovah blood throughout the planet by putting them in that strategic place. Now, as in most areas, Israel blew it. But that didn't stop God from using them, because failure is never an ultimate obstacle to God. They blew it, like so much of the church today. Listen up. They interpreted their calling as being sort of this special... Uh, we're loved by God more than other people. We are more holy. We are wiser. We, we, we you know, we're, we're God's, we fix the world for God's people. Um, and, and so they end up being judgmental and looking down on the very people they're supposed to be serving. God elected them, chose them as a nation for a specific historical purpose, and the purpose was to serve the world. But like so much of the church, they stopped serving the world, and they just decided it's more fun to judge the world. 
And then the, the Pharisees are kind of the ultimate quintessential example of that. Well, God doesn't give up. He's still working through them. Because God made a sworn an oath. And so through Abraham, all the worlds are going to be blessed. But now we find out how. Because when Jesus comes into this world, he comes out of the Jewish nation. He becomes the incarnation of the mission of Israel. He is the new Israel, and all who are in him are part of this new Israel. Now, God is still working with the nation of Israel. Paul says in Romans 11 that in the end, all of Israel will be saved. And, and I can't figure all that out just, just right now. But he's still dealing with the nation. But the mission of Israel is still being fulfilled. God's will is never ultimately defeated because now he's doing it through Christ. And in Christ, we now see clearly, intensely, what was true all along, but just gradually in the process of being unfolded. And that is that God's goal is this, to call out a people who are rightly related uh, horizontally, so, no, vertically, so they'll be rightly related horizontally. He, uh, he wants to gather together the world once again. He wants to reverse Babel altogether. He wants a kingdom. He wants a bride. He wants a people. This has always been his goal. But now in the New Testament, it's being fulfilled. A, 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 a people who come from every tribe and every tongue, Revelation 7, 9, uh, have all these different cultures, all the kings bringing their own distinct glory of the nations before the throne. And now that is being fulfilled in Jesus Christ and to all who are in Jesus Christ, which is all the kingdom people that are here right now. If you understand that, you'll understand what I'm going to say right now as I close, or as I start to close. <laughs> Listen, you guys, I know that when we talk about reconciliation here, God has called us in no uncertain terms that we are to be a bridge. A bridge. Individually, we're to be bridges, and collectively, we're a bridge. Uh, bridging people with God and therefore, and therefore bridging people with one another because you can't have one without the other. And that includes bridging socioeconomic divides, bring, uh, 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 bridging ethnic divides, bridging denominational divides, bridging language divides, bridging everything. Now, when we talk on that, I, because most people haven't heard this in, 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 the, in different churches, why? I don't know. But they haven't heard it. They, they think it's some kind of optional thing, a marginal thing, that we're imbalanced on this, or something. It's a Greg liberal thing. Or, or, or it, the worst is some people think, oh, it's political correctness. And I just want to say that, that is, those are like diabolical, sabotaging things that the enemy plants in people's brains to, to, to disqualify them from feeling the full force of this. If you've been paying attention the last 15 minutes, then you, you, you'll understand this. This reconciliation thing, bringing together different people groups, uh, worshiping God in diversity, embracing other cultures rather than just seeing them as a pain in the neck and a problem that you got to deal with, uh, going beyond tolerating one another and actually loving one another. This isn't marginal. It's not optional. It's not secondary. This is the center of the whole thing. Amen. This is what God's been driving at. Old Testament, New Testament. And it's evidence of a demonic involvement that it's marginalized and dismissed uh, in so many places. It, it, it just hasn't been part of, of, of the program. We preach healing in Jesus' name. We preach, we preach uh, uh, forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. But read Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. There's the healing of the nations. There's a creation of a one new humanity. There's a tearing down the wall in Jesus' name. And if Jesus died for it, then we have got to be the people who right now fulfill his story, who fulfill the Old Testament in this New Testament mode by bringing together these people of every tribe and every tongue and every nation and glorifying God in that manner. This is central. This is, this, is, this is what it's all about. Reconciled this way, so reconciled that way. And I encourage us individually to therefore... See, 
to be his story making, to be his story making, history making, and it is history making simply because this isn't done very much in history, but to be part of his story is to commit to being a bridge builder, which means be intentional about building relationships with people who don't look like you. Uh, be, be intentional about worshiping in services where the music doesn't come natural to you. If we're doing our job, you ought not to be happy with an entire worship service. Uh, it ought to be the case, sometimes more than others, but where it's like, well, that's not really what comes natural to me. But see, the goal of worshiping God in this diversity, the reuniting of the world, has got to be placed above, far above, our own personal preference. Now that just kills the American dream, doesn't it? Because what America's all about is I get in my way. Here's what I like, and if I don't get what I like, I'm out of here. Well, that's just the price we got to pay. Uh, but it, it, this only happens. As we've been looking around at different churches and different models to learn from people, what we see is they all have this one thing in common, that they create a culture where people understand that it's about dying to yourself and, and, and saying, you know what, I, I, what I prefer is to see the diversity more than my own personal preference, to fall in love with non-homogeneous environments and to begin to actually participate in songs and you don't even understand the language and you can't even find the beat. And even, yes, even, folks, bluegrass music. I'm willing to go there. I'm willing, I'm willing to suffer for Jesus, all right? Even this morning as we're dismissed, I encourage you, uh, and, and, you know, I, in the next five minutes, that'll be the easy time, but, but I'm talking about tomorrow and next week, to, when was the last time you had a person who doesn't look like you over for dinner? Think about that kind of stuff. And be intentional, and just build, be building bridges here, as God calls us to be a people who manifest what Jesus died for. The Old Testament and the New Testament, it's the same God. It's different means, it's different means. But we're living in the time where it's being fulfilled. All that runaway stuff, the baton, baton is being passed over, and now we got it. Let's run with it in Jesus' name. Would you stand, and I'll close in prayer. The front of the auditorium is open. If you want to come forward for prayer, you got any need whatsoever, we got a prayer team. would love to pray with you. If you have never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, or if you just surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, please come up here at the table to my right and your left. Uh, the person would love to just to give you some free stuff and talk to you about what that's about and start living out this kingdom walk. Father, in Jesus' name, we again thank you for calling us to be your people. We're swimming upstream on this one, Lord God. We confess we can't do it without you. We need you. We pray for rain. Rain on us, Lord God. Pour out your spirit on us. Break strongholds. Free us. Free us from the blinders we don't even know we have, especially the blinders we don't know we even have. Free us from the way that we categorize other people, the way we're afraid of other people, the way we judge other people, Lord God. Free us to have your heart to all people. Free us to have your delight in diversity of cultures and expressions and worshiping styles and personality types. Free us to be a people who embrace with passion instead of simply put up with the diversity of your creation, Lord God. Free us to be the people who live out the mission, the goal that you've had from the beginning which is, God, to have people reconciled to you and therefore reconciled to one another, Lord God. Free us, God, to be a people who live in your story, who make his story, not our own story. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. amen. Go forth and build a kingdom.